We're excited to tell you about Pine Tree Garden Seeds, a women-run, family-owned and operated business since 1979, founded with the simple mission of offering low prices on quality seeds to the home gardener. Over the years, offerings have expanded to include over 1,300 varieties of seeds, including many heirlooms and organics, a huge assortment of tools and gardening gear, and lots of new gardening books. They also offer roots, plant starts, and tubers, berry bushes, asparagus roots, onion sets, hops, fig trees, sweet potatoes, dahlias, peonies, lilies, and a whole new selection of fall flower bulbs. Located in Maine, they operate out of a 300-year-old farmhouse and strive to offer the best service and products with a personal touch. They continue to hand pack more than half of their seeds and rely on their Ballard machine from the 1890s to do the rest. So order your seeds today from superseeds.com and use the promo code GOODDIRT2024 for 20% off your entire order. That's superseeds, S-U-P-E-R-S-E-E-D-S.com with our code GOODDIRT2024. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Three quarters of America's farmers are over 65 years old and only 2% feed everyone. We've got a demographic cliff coming. There's something better about a small, intensively managed farm that feeds the community than a large monocrop farm where you have like one or two people doing all of this large scale monocrop. It's very different. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, Emma. Beautiful morning. Such a nice morning. A little chilly, but really beautiful. You said you just got back from a walk. Yes, I did. It was a really nice walk. And I just saw the sweetest little daffodil buds, tiny, tiny. They're not blooming yet, but just I could tell they're like, you know, you can see the little bit of yellow ready to bloom. That made me so happy. Yeah, we've got those too. There's a whole bunch of them out there as always. It's usually right around the 1st of March. And when this is live, it's going to be the last Friday yeah. in February. So we're getting we there. Are, and I will say, I think I've noticed the past couple of years that sometimes the daffodils pop up in like January and it feels really early. But this feels a little yeah. bit more like it's supposed to be. So that's also nice. They go anywhere from like late January to early April. It just, just depending on how cold it is. If it's too cold to pop out, they'll stay in. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the daffodils. They're so happy and 
I believe they're the flower for March and my birthday's in March. So I've always just loved them for that reason too. Yes. And I have probably told this on here before, but when we brought you home from the hospital in March, the daffodils were blooming in the yard. That's the first time I'd seen the blooms that year. So I always associate the daffodils blooming with bringing you home as a little baby. And lots of other stuff happening around here too. We have this star magnolia and it's got these beautiful fuzzy little buds on it. They're one of the early flowers. So I'm looking forward to that. That's going to happen soon. And there are things coming up like the green, like I'm seeing a whole lot more chickweed, which is a wonderful, yummy, wild green that I love to eat this time of year, put it on salads and stuff. So yeah, lots of things happening, lots of signs of spring. And one sure sign of spring for Lady Farmer in years past has been the slow living challenge. I feel like the slow living challenge is a good way to really be fully present for the beginning of spring, which is such a special time. So the slow living challenge is simply really when it comes down to it, it's a few weeks of prompts that we've come up with for you to inspire you and encourage you to slow down. And the thing is that the, everyone who's participating is reading the same prompts every day. So it's sort of fun that we're all doing it together to sign up, to be a part of it. You'll just join our Substack. We'll be doing the Slow Living Challenge through Substack this year. And then what's exciting about that is after the Slow Living Challenge, that Substack space will become our new home for community and all of our extra content and all of the wonderful things that we talk about on the Almanac. So we're actually moving Almanac to Substack. If you don't know what Substack is yet, you're in for a treat. It's a really lovely, wonderful newsletter platform. We have lots of exciting things in store there. So sign up for the Slow Living Challenge at the link in the show notes. Also, slowlivingchallenge.com will get you there. That was exciting that we were able to get that website. So slowlivingchallenge.com will get you straight to the Slow Living Challenge sign up. And it's totally free to participate also. Just to note, when you sign up for the Substack, you probably will be prompted. There is a subscription option for some of the, the extra content stuff. But don't worry about that. You don't have to pay for anything ever if you don't want to, but certainly to participate in the Slow Living Challenge and to get sort of just the general lady farmer content updates will always be free. Signing up for our Substack also means that you will get weekly updates every time we drop a podcast episode, which is exciting. So on to today's podcast episode, today's interview. Do you want to introduce the guest, Mom? Yes. Today we're talking with Judith Horvath of Fair Hill Farmstead. She was a business executive and a homesteader until she was busted for having illegal backyard chickens in suburbia. So with her husband and kids along for the ride and starting with zero knowledge, they went all in starting their own farm, raising highly parasite resistant hair sheep, dairy goats, designer daylilies, and a whole lot more. In less than a decade, Judah's success in agri-entrepreneurism enabled her to quit the corporate world for good and start her own thing. So cool. So Judith believes a future with a resilient food supply chain will be networks of small local farms utilizing regenerative methods requiring a lot more farmers. On her podcast, Fair Hill Farmstead Life, she entertains and inspires first-generation homesteaders and farmers with stories of struggle and success. In her work, she helps people build homesteads, family farms, and build successful regenerative agriculture ventures from day one. Her current projects include the redesigning of local food supply chains and the development of agrihood, which are communities built with a working farm or community garden as a focus. Imagine 
if your food source and that of all your neighbors was part of your neighborhood. We love talking about this. Join us today to hear more about it and all the other things she's up to in her fun employment, she calls it, as a full-time farmer and entrepreneur with a mission. Here's Judith Horvath of Fair Hill Farm. I am Judith Horvath at Fairhill Farm in Lancaster, Ohio, and I'm a farmer first, but in addition to being a farmer, I recruit other farmers, and I am trying to do my best to raise awareness to help people understand the the critical importance of the connection between where their food comes from and what they can do to be part of that process, and in the process, hopefully helping to recreate a local food supply chain different than we have today. You called yourself a farm recruiter. I've never heard that. That's really cool. So can you tell us a little bit of your story? Well, back many years ago when my children were younger, they're, they're young adults now, but when they were very little, they had some pretty bad food allergies. And after getting some testing done, I came to discover that they were not actually allergic to food. They were allergic to some of the things that were in their food. And that led me to a whole bunch of learning and discovery and and heartache actually coming to realize what is in our food and how our food is processed and where it comes from and how it gets from where it is produced to where we have it and what's actually in it. And it was pretty alarming. It wasn't an easy process because I actually had to take a class to learn how to decode food labels. So this is not an obvious thing, you know, for a lot of people to understand what all those ingredients are. And there wasn't a lot of materials back then that were available. One thing led to another. And, you know, when you start realizing what's in your food, you start worrying about who's grown your food and where did it come from. And my husband and I lived in suburbia and a half an acre right outside of Columbus, Ohio. And I tore up my backyard and turned it into gardens and planted fruit trees and got some illegal backyard chickens. And (laughs) just, it went from there. And I started doing this stuff that my friends are like, oh, look at you, Martha Stewart, you're so crafty. And, And today, I guess it would be called homesteading, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. And then when the Great Recession, the big economic downturn hit in 08, I lost my job and we almost lost our house, but we ate out of our gardens and we had the eggs from the chickens and I had canned a lot of things and I was able to make so much food from scratch. We really cut our costs hugely. And by the time we got back on our feet and got reemployed and everything and the emergency passed, I realized that that was a way of life that I really enjoyed because it had served us really well in that sort of personal emergency. And then I got busted for my legal backyard chickens by the Homeowners Association. Oh, my gosh. So probably not my proudest moment, but I I butchered them in the front yard in protest. And my husband and I decided to go and buy a farm. We decided that it was not a passing phase. So we decided to double down. So we scraped our pennies together. I mean, I'm really condensing this because the process actually took almost two and a half years to find and purchase our farm. And then when we got it, it was a complete wreck. And so we have spent we've now been on the farm. This is going to be our 11th year. And so we have spent the last 10 years learning how to farm, deciding what it is that we're good at farming, learning our land, reclaiming the land, rehabbing the soil, the buildings, getting fences in, learning about livestock and all of that stuff. And it has just been a heck of a journey. Meanwhile, 
I was sort of living a dual life because I was a white collar executive doing contact center stuff and doing evening and weekend warrior stuff, doing farming. So it felt like my heart was kind of pulled in half. When COVID happened, the world was suddenly working from home. Me too. Oh my goodness, I've got two hours a day. What am I going to do with myself? I decided to, like, once again, I don't do anything halfway. So I doubled down and I started a goat milk soap and shampoo bar business on the side with my extra time and some natural skincare products and really doubled down on my gardening and started to dream of when I would be able to do this full time because I found it hundred times more fulfilling than what I was doing in my white collar job. The most wonderful thing happened. I was pink slipped and I decided I was not going to go back. I wasn't going to look for another job elsewhere. I said, I've got a short amount of runway here and I'm going to take it. I went into farming full time. And now today, in the past year and a half, two years since that happened, I do something completely different. I have taken a good hard look at where I first started, which was the problem with our food chain, the problem with what's on our food and worrying about what are we putting into our bodies and our bodily health. And I've come to realize after COVID that our food supply chain is broken. It is brittle. It is highly efficient. But those extreme efficiencies are also the things that make it brittle. And one little hiccup, one little interruption really caused a lot of pain. And when you look at the state of soils and the way that conventional farming is conducted in the United States today, it's depletive. It makes me sad when I see plows doing their spring plowing and hundreds of pounds of soil per acre like flying away. The fertilizers and the synthetic inputs needed to supply this. And it's unbelievable that our food travels to and 3,000 miles to get to our plate when I'm a small local producer now and I can provide grass-fed meats that are available to my community at much lower cost. And then I see other small farmer friends of mine and they're only getting 13 cents on the dollar that is paid in the grocery store. There's no reason why farmers should not be making a living wage for the hard work that we do. After being laid off, I decided I'm not going to stand around and admire the problem. So I am doing my best to help raise awareness and do some things to help reimagine our food supply chain as being more locally based, probably a little bit more European model type situation, but using regenerative agricultural methods that are more sustainable, less energy intensive, and they put money back into the local economies and they keep the money in the local economies and they employ small farmers. And I do this through a couple activities. First of all, I personally, our family lives intentionally. We're continuously learning, expanding and increasing our farm's productivity. So we live the talk. We did not come from a farming background. So we're figuring this out as we go. And it's, it's hard because there's more farming mentors than used to be out there. But it's a lot of sort of figure it out as you go. And even if you have great mentors, no two farms are the same. So it's that's a continuous learning process. I also have outreach and awareness, and that is through my podcast, writing, speaking. I do interviews like I'm doing today, and I run classes for some students. And then the third way is creating spaces and places that further all of this. And that is my consulting business. What I am finding, I'm not doing at all what I thought I was going to be doing in my consulting. Once I started reaching out to people out there, I found that there is a great need for places to be created that connect people in an intentional fashion, whether on their private land or in planned communities that help people 
be part of a bigger picture, not the one weirdo at the office who happens to have illegal backyard chickens, you know, because I've been there too. And that's not fun necessarily to get to work. You got hay in your hair. That's not always good when you're, you know, leading the, the team meeting. So there's a need and I think there's a hunger for people to have these places. And so one of the things that I'm delving into is helping with the planning and the development and the design of agrihoods. And I wouldn't say eco villages. There's not really a good word for it yet. So it's eco agrihood. It's more than, it, yeah, agro community, really. Mm -hmm. But all done through regenerative methods. So many things I want to touch on. But while we're on the agrihood, for anyone who might not know what that is or have heard that concept before, can you explain? Yeah. Think back to the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years when there'd be a big community or a big development that would come in and there would be a, an old farm, old Johnson's farm and, you know, old McDonald's farm. And it was cleared out and there was a whole bunch of houses put in there with a golf course in the middle and a swim club. And it was named after the farm. It would be Johnson Estates. Yeah. Yeah. Johnson Estate. You got it. Exactly. And then there would be, you know, a little window box and something out there as a little nod to the family. And that history of that land was lost. And people just knew they lived at Johnson Farm and they never knew about the Johnsons. So I'd like to say that we're starting to evolve a little bit more, becoming a little more aware. So instead of putting a golf course and a, a country club in the middle, it's going to be an organic farm. But more than just that, it's connecting the people to that farm. Instead of just being an interesting sort of quirk or commodity in the middle of the community, that farm is a working farm. It has actual food production and maybe orchards and edible landscaping and some animals there to provide some food and at least as an educational purpose for the inhabitants and a CSA program where the members and the residents are encouraged to participate in that. And then farm tours and farm experiences and a hundred different ways to do that. And then other amenities inside that that also serve to connect the people to that farm. So it might be farmer's markets and an event center and weddings and a farm venue or something like that, or local restaurants coming and doing a showcase with events or farm dances or whatever the case may be, but something and maybe community gardens, something to connect that community to that farm to support it and have pride in it and really participate in the process of making sure that that community supports that farmer and supports that farm in a way that is probably, I wouldn't say conventional, but historical and traditional in sort of a way that, you know, it used to be. This is a fascinating concept. And I, I think I know of one in our area that is in Northern Virginia that I probably heard of like three or four years ago. So is this something that you see popping up all over the country and you are taking part in your area? How are you involved in the agrihood movement? I know I realize you're a, a farm mentor, but beyond that, what's your involvement with developing agrihoods? Great question. I have visited several of these places and yes, they are cropping up more and more. They seem to be cropping up in warmer climates a little bit more. It's hard to really say how many there are because the definition of agrihood could be six houses in a cluster and they rent or it could be a thousand acres and, you know, hundreds of residences. So there's a couple, there's probably maybe a dozen really prominent ones. And I wonder how much too, sorry to interrupt, but it just seems like something that's so fuzzy and would, I don't know this for a fact, but it seems like something that would lend itself well to if they say they're doing that, but when you look at what's happening, it's not working or I don't know if that's something that comes Yeah, up. you've actually put your finger right on something that identified as going, going and checking out all of these places. They are all set up differently. Each one's a little bit different. And from legal and financial standpoints 
to the actual workings of the farm, to the amount of food that is produced for the farm versus the amount of food that's brought in or its function or how it's like, there are no two that are the same. And, you know, there's dozens of little experiments. And that's actually why I went and visited a whole group of these because we wanted to take the concepts and learn from all these different agrihoods and take the best of each and then see where we thought the problems were of the others and avoid duplication and then mimic, you know, depending on what it is that we wanted to do and what we wanted to accomplish. And what we found is, and this is theory really more than anything else, because there's no control really, if you will, for a straight up experiment. But we're two to three generations removed from agrarian background. 80% of the country was living in farms around World War II. Now we're generations removed from that. And now only 2% of the population are actually farmers, just 2%. That is a massive demographic shift. The social movement and the way that people grew up was different. And I don't think that we're going to be able to achieve a good solid reconnection to where our food comes from with the generation that are adults now, because that isn't how they grew up. Now, maybe, maybe the kids, you know, maybe that'll work, but we have to kind of come up with these communities that are these first step, but it's not the final iteration. We have to take that mm -hmm. first step and it has to be interesting and it has to draw them in before they feel it. And then it becomes a way of life. And then that's how they grew up. And then that's what they want to perpetuate. The things that are lacking in a lot of these communities is large percent of uptake. So what would be considered to be a successful CSA right now would be something that is probably more than 10 to 15 percent participation rate in the CSA. You mean within the neighborhood that surrounds the farm? Yeah. The other thing is that, and this is where I come in, the other thing is that these agrihoods will be designed with a farm. Sometimes they're designed by an actual farmer and sometimes they're designed by landscape architects. And landscape architects can make things look beautiful, but they might not understand that you need to have a modular wash house where you could do soak or you could do rinse. They might not understand that you need to bury those water lines 38 inches underground instead of 16 inches underground. They might understand the orientation with the sunlight and the direction for hoop houses, or they put them into the prevailing winds or there's things like that that make it aesthetically beautiful, but impractical when it comes to operational efficiency and proper logistics when it comes to, yeah, the functionality is definitely lacking in some of these things. So that's where I come in because we can find a landscape architect, we can find a, a land design company, we can find a placemaking company, but they don't have farmers on staff. And speaking as a farmer who has toured a hundred different farms and a whole bunch of these agrihoods. And I have oriented the crops in the wrong direction. I have set up doorways to be in the wrong place of the barn in the wrong direction. I have put the gates on the wrong place of the fencing. You know, I have failed to plan for this and that and water flow and everything. And this is where I can come in and I can add value. And with my corporate experience in operations management, I understand efficiency. I understand systems and then meld that with my farming experience. And I understand that. Yeah. So are you working with a group? It's kind of like a consulting group or is it something that you started or... What is the body that's doing this? I am teamed up with one particular group 
in the Southeast United States, we have not yet acquired the land. So I can't really go into details about it because it's still kind of hush. You're like building an agri-hood. We're in the process of acquiring the land. So we are in the, yeah. So we're in the process of acquiring the land to build an agri-hood and we are interviewing with the landscape architects and the placemaking people and the developers. And we're in the process of getting this all up and running. And I'm the farm person of the group. Oh my gosh. So super cool. Yeah, that's that's my job. So I'm coming up with all of the principles and then the operational efficiency and then the profit margin and then the equipment and working with the landscape architects to say, I want the following and here's all of the requirements for a farm has to be able to do this, this and this and this. Avoid that. Do the other thing. Leave space for improvement and expansion through three phases, blah, blah, blah. Set the expectations for the investors. What's going to be year one, three, five and ten in, in terms of profit margin and then expectations for, you know, this many people in this program and this much percent uptake at this program and what is that profitability going to look like? Just setting the expectations and getting them plugged into the prospectus. So you're coming at it from a place of you're working on this building a new thing, but it sounds like what's needed too is someone like a group and your expertise kind of to be a central association for these like agrihoods to create some kind of standards or something. Do you think that that would be helpful or is even a a possibility? Because like you said, depending on region and everything, these things can just be so different from each other, but it seems like that would be a helpful Thing for the movement in general. Yeah, like there should be some common denominators that are set. Of course, like who's going to institute that as a requirement? Nobody. But something that can look beautiful in the glossy brochures to get people interested in, you know, investing in a neighborhood like that. I know I would have been all over that, that it existed in the 90s. In fact, the subdivision we invested in in the 90s when our children were growing up was said to be linked to a nature center. And I got all excited about that. And I thought, this is the one, you know, this is this is the one that stands out amongst all these others that are just houses plopped on land. And I thought, oh, we can walk into the nature center. It'll be, you know, part of the neighborhood and all integrated. And, and then as it turned out a few years down the road, <laughs> that part of the development was pretty much ignored because no one was interested in it, like, except me. And I kept asking, when are we going to have this path that takes us to the nature center? And it just like, it never happened. You know, it was part of the, you know, the marketing of it. So I can see this happening like all over the place because people are, you know, there is some interest in farming now and food supply and being more in touch with the source of your food and all this, you know, this is, we talk to people about all the this all the time and there is a growing interest in it in it. But as you're saying, it only goes so far and it's not going to do any good unless we we, you know, really get the concepts ingrained in the the infrastructure. So this is what you're going for, I hear you say. Are you working on or do you think it would work? Some kind of centralized association for kind of keeping all this knowledge accessible to anyone who's looking to to build these projects around the country. Here are some things we love about Pine Tree Garden Seeds. For one thing, they're lady farmers. It's a woman-owned and woman-run company. 85% of their staff is female. And they've recently switched to a more sustainable envelope to ship seeds. Their new mailers are completely recyclable, made of paper and a cushioning material that is specifically designed to easily separate from the paper fibers during the repulping and recycling process. They're also longtime members and supporters of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and signers of the Safe Seed Pledge, promising to never knowingly sell any GMO seeds. 
They do germination testing throughout the year on every single seed variety they carry, so they can stand behind their viability guarantee. Pine Tree Garden Seeds is meant for every level of expertise, for the yard artists, the backyard growers, the herb explorers, the bouquet builders, the habitat curators, and beyond. They're committed to helping you get the most out of your home garden by providing high-quality garden seeds, plants, and supplies at an affordable price. Get your spring garden going today by ordering your seeds from superseeds.com and using our promo code GOODDIRT2024 for 20% off your entire order. That's S-U-P-E-R-S-E-E-D-S.com with our code GOODDIRT2024. I don't know that there's enough of them to have a large enough pool of centralized knowledge because there's it's you're you're not just comparing apples and oranges you're what do they say you're comparing apples and orangutans they're so (laughs) different they're so different yeah depending on where you are yeah yeah. they are I mean they have common elements but even is something organically certified or is it regenerative are they just produce are they creating their own compost are they not I mean yeah I mean I guess I guess some sort of maybe a ranking system that compares them some sort of system that reviews and ranks maybe would be better but I don't know about specific standards I can tell you that most of the ones that are coming out now there seems to be a bunch of them in Texas first of all But besides that, a lot of them have close to 50% open space in them. So the green space is huge. And to, Mm -hmm. air quotes, compete with other agri-hoods and to be in the club, you know, of sustainable living and Mm -hmm. farm-to-table experience in an everyday community, a very livable, walkable, enjoyable community, that 50% green space with many, many, many miles of trails is, that's ubiquitous. Absolutely. That's, that's. That's across the board. The other amenities, they, they vary so much. I mean, it gives people a lot of options. That's cool. But Urban Land Institute's done a lot of work with them, actually. Urban Land Institute has put out a, a publication on agrihoods. Now, it was several years ago. It was very good. I certainly enjoyed reading it. I'm not sure that the agrihoods that I have visited are really accurately reflected based on that literature. But some of the concepts are there, but it's evolving so quickly that it's almost like it needs to be revisited on a regular basis. It, it is. I'm very curious to hear from your point of view what you see really working and and really happening as opposed to what you see like being promised but not really delivered. Or where do you see this going on in a really forward moving way? Where Where do you see it really happening? I think it's going to be interesting and marketing-y. And hip and curiosity to people who want to feel like they're doing something. They want to feel like they're making a difference. They want to feel like they're aware and connecting, but they don't have the experience, ability, time, physical. They want to help and support, but they don't want to actually be doing. And then in the meantime, they want to kind of like, I don't I don't know if it's like virtue signal, signaling too much. And I don't mean it in a bad way because virtue signaling is like sort of like a, it's got a lot of negative connotation to it. I think it's more like we're at the leading edge of the uptake of this. Let me put it that way. And so it's still variable. And it's not widely understood. Every time I talk about it, people are like, wait, what? That exists? That's a thing? What is that? You know, it's it's still very new, which is cool. But at the same time, I think being early is good because I know for a fact that our current food system is not sustainable. We're putting 10 calories of energy into every one calorie coming out through fossil fossil fuels, transportation, production of plastics and packaging and mechanization and fertilizers and all the production 
and all of that, there's 10 calories of energy put in for every one calorie out. Now, regardless of what's going on, that's a math problem. It just is not infinitely sustainable. It just isn't. And we're increasing in population density all over the place. And so with farmers, I mean, whoever said, I'm going to go into farming, I'm going to get rich being a farmer, said no one ever, right? It just doesn't happen. So there's, <laughs> you know, these farmers, there's not a lot of incentive for their kids to go, oh, hey, I want to, I want to scrape and starve and battle bankruptcy every year, just like I've seen my last three generations do. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of good feels for that. So this offers the path forward for people to recognize that a small piece of land intensively farmed with very specific guidelines and practices can be ridiculously productive and get the community support. So you don't have to worry about going out and if you're going to be a small farmer, you also got to be a marketer. You got to be a food handling specialist. You, you got to be a paralegal to understand all the labeling laws. You know, you under, you need to, you need to be talking to your county for all your regulations. No, this like helps farmers do farming the same way that the staff for a physician helps them just be into medicine and not doing the paperwork. This needs to happen. And it needs to be something where that farmer provides the food that that community wants. And it's going to be different in every place. And it's going to be different for every different ethnicity and, you know, cultural practice and wherever it is that they're going to be doing it. We have to somehow unwind this idea that our country needs to feed the world, which is an idea that came into being like, you know, somewhere in the middle of the last century when the get big or get out philosophy, you know, where the farmers had to thousands of acres instead mm -hmm. of your own small diversified farm. And when this, this transformation has happened over the last, you know, 75, 80 years, I would say. So, so this idea of kind of moving back to let's live in a community and we're going to feed ourselves in this community, it sort of flies in the face of that. It sort of, it, 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 turns it upside down. And that's a real paradigm shift for us as, as a nation, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The oil that was easy to get a hundred years ago is not present anymore. I mean, even the shale oil boom, that's like shaking up your cup and slurping the bottom out of the bottom of the slushy. It's not super sustainable. The earth isn't making any more of it. And those days of cheap, easily accessible oil, they're coming to a close rapidly. I don't mean to be like little Debbie Downer here, but it's true. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having catastrophes like Deepwater Horizon and things like that if we're able to get it off of someone's backyard and not going miles and miles and miles and miles down beneath the crust to get this stuff. Like the easy cheap oil is gone and it's more expensive and it's more dangerous and it's more disruptive to the environment to get the stuff that we need left, that we have left. And at the end of the day, we are extremely dependent upon petroleum as a country. The world is extremely dependent upon petroleum and our food system is based upon large scale monocrop agriculture that through the wonders of agronomy and fertilizer, which comes from petroleum production and cheap, easy, large-scale distribution, collection, and transportation, and a lot of processing, like I said, putting stuff into cans and packages and mechanization. Those days where that is possible and the cheapest, easiest way to do things, those are coming to an end. We're not at it yet, but in my opinion, it's hard to learn how to be a farmer. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years to learn it long time. And we need to get started now. And that's why I'm busy recruiting the youth going, hey, three quarters of America's farmers are over 65 years old and only 2% feed everyone. We've got a demographic cliff coming. 
So, hey, youth, you feel like you want something more out of life. You want to do something with your hands. You want to do something that's meaningful. You want to get into something that's going to make a difference. It's going to feed people and you're going to be building the soil and not raping the earth. Get into agriculture, but this kind of agriculture, because this this area is growing gangbusters. It's busting wide open. But there's something better about a small, intensively managed farm that feeds the community than a large monocrop farm where you have like one or two people doing all of this large scale monocrop. It's completely different. They're two different paradigms. You call it farming, but it's 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 very different. You know, instead of feeding the world, if everyone worked somehow to feed their community, if everybody did this, then all communities would be fed. I mean, if you think about it that way, sort of an inversion of the idea. Can you speak a little to more to the economics sort of how you you introduced at the beginning? I think a big problem with why people aren't super drawn to farming is that it doesn't promise compensation to any really attractive level. But it sounded like you think you've figured this out or you see a way that's better. And this is obviously what you do consulting on. And so I'm sure it's very complicated and probably hard to condense. But can you speak at all to sort of the way that you see the economics of it working better and how as consumers, maybe listeners of this podcast can begin to think about how they participate in the system a little bit differently. I personally just, I know so many farmers, we're part of a community of amazing farmers. And it's just the reality is that it's just so hard and not really realistic to make a living at it, which is obviously backwards. But the sad thing about it is the people that are successful have inherited generational land or generational wealth, and they are extremely privileged and they have the flexibility to be able to do this. And that's just so weird and backwards. And I don't think should be the case. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. How do you recruit farmers in this environment? Okay, so I'll speak about the economics first, then I'll talk about recruiting, because I think that the answer to the first is going to give you the answer to the second. The economics is that I mentioned 13 cents on the dollar of every product that you go, you know, you go to Kroger and you buy something for a dollar. Only 13 cents of that has actually gone to the farmer. So right there you have a system that's 87% system. So you're not going to get greater than 13% profit margin right there as a farmer. So based on that, you have razor thin margins for being able to produce your crop. And as we all know, farming is like playing poker with God. And it is something that can be completely outside of your control. You can have a flood, you can have a fire, you can have you name it, it can happen. Weather aside, there can be economic situations that change everything. There can be legislation that changes all kinds of things. You can have equipment problems. So really today in America, large-scale industrial farming, big ag, get robots, like you said, get big or get out. Most people did. They got big. And if they got very big, they were able to, there's a possibility of becoming very comfortable simply through economies of scale, much like a Walmart. Walmart does not have high profits, but they have a huge amount of people coming in and buying a bunch of stuff. So you have economies of scale versus other things. Now, when you have economies for scale and you're just going for dollars, that means that you're making other sacrifices in order to make something transportable, shelf-stable, commoditized, move it quickly. So you have the three cash crops, mostly on these monoculture farms, you know, your, your beans, your corn, and your wheat. And then you'll have very large scale monoculture fields where you'll have a thousand acres of the specific kind of tomato or 3000 acres of strawberries in California and things like that. It is definitely profit through economies of scale and it's based on cheap labor, but invariably it is a debt 
based system. And that is the problem in large-scale agriculture today. Farmers will go to the bank and they will take out a loan for their seed for the year. And then they have to go back and they have to pay back their loan and then whatever is left is left for them at the end of the season. But it is a single payday for these large industrial farmers and these monocrop farmers. It is a debt-based system. That being said, it's very easy to make a small error or overlook something or have to you have to like make a trade-off where you will over time you can slide into less profitability generationally because you have to do upkeep property taxes are always going up i mean there's there's a myriad of reasons that's a real problem what i'm saying is that through regenerative agriculture that has been discovered and really we've known about regenerative agriculture forever but it has really been embraced. Things like no-till and composting and intensive planting, succession planting, interplanting, use of high tunnels, even in warm areas, all of these things can bring extraordinary amounts of activity from small pieces of land because it is always going to be better where you can intensely manage and care for a small piece of land in a very careful and thoughtful and systematic way, then roll the dice in a debt-based system and deal with a large amount of land. You can employ a lot of people who are now feeding their community directly. That 87% that goes to the system, when you're going direct to your consumer, you now have more of a wiggle room. That 87% is there for you to work with. So even if it's less efficient than big ag, if it's small, you don't need the mechanization. You don't need to finance a combine that costs $800,000 over you know, the, the, the length of a mortgage. There's very little mechanization immune to fertilizer cost fluctuations. You're immune to diesel cost problems. Like this is, it just doesn't really exist in some of these really intensive agriculture things. And so we're starting to see numbers like 100, 120, 140, 85, 120 thousand dollars of produce per acre that are being produced on these small regenerative agricultural farms. And they've been proving it again and again. And through no-till methods, serious composting, and there's historical precedent for it as well. Back in the 1800s, the city of Paris was food independent. Did you know that? Six percent of the city was all that the market gardeners of Paris needed to provide all the food to that city itself. And then the car came along and they didn't have horses for manure anymore. And so then they had cars, they didn't have enough manure. And the market gardener said, see ya, we got to get out of here. And they went outside of the city. And within one generation, that knowledge was lost. And this was before they had the ability to do solar stuff and, and other renewable fuel sources. They were like composting horse manure and using glass cloches. That is so interesting. Well, that was some pretty tough stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are the essential requirements for regenerative farming in these communities? I mean, what would you consider to be the things that would have to be in place to achieve these goals? It sounds like you don't want a lot of fossil fuel costs, so there's there's not that large-scale machinery happening. So does this mean a lot of people doing manual labor for jobs for the community, or what does it look like? Yeah, it does look like that to a point. You're probably going to need something like a small tractor in order to turn over compost piles, but there needs to be a robust composting practice going on. If you're going to be exporting vegetables and fruits and berries and produce out of your farm, you need to be bringing nutrition in because those plants are consuming those nutrients that are in the soil. So you have to have a very robust composting process, which means that you're getting 
it back from the community and has to be from clean sources. So it has to be an organized system within the community that is a virtuous circle. Okay, so leaf collection, if someone doesn't want, I don't know why they wouldn't want leaves on their, and they're not doing their own compost on their property. I mean, whatever, I'm not going to judge. But, you know, for those people who put out their leaves at the end of the year in those paper bags, those should be gathered and they should be composted in a way. There should be working with local grocery stores. This is something that I have classically failed at is convincing local grocery stores to give me their cast off produce, the stuff that they're not going to be utilizing. They refuse to give it to me. I'm like, it's a liability. I'm like, I'm feeding it to my chickens and my pot belly pigs. This is not a liability. And you're like, I'm getting like wilted lettuce from my goats. How is this a liability? Oh, we're not allowed. They'd rather put it in the landfill. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. And it is so wasteful. And it's so much opportunity lost to be a big part of that system. Now, I know Kroger probably doesn't want to help Johnson's Farm put them out of local business, and that's fine. But, you know, if Johnson's Farm can employ six people per acre for a higher living wage and the food they're producing is better than what you buy in the produce section of Kroger and it came from the farm in your community and it's paying your local community and it's paying them a higher wage than minimum wage, why wouldn't a community stand behind that? I mean, you got to lead the way first. So it's hard. But I think that these farmers need to, they need to realize they need not just a marketing campaign, but a marketing program, an ongoing public awareness program that helps people understand the bigger system. And so I think it's a tall order and there's a lot of moving parts and it has to be profitable. But people don't make changes unless they're forced to. For the most part, because it's easy, it's convenient. You know, you just go online and your groceries show up at your door and it's it's too darn convenient. Well, then maybe your local farm needs to think about competing in their own way. I'll deliver my CSA to you every week. Right. So maybe that's something they do. But really, you don't need to have large pieces of land. These farms that are producing so much, four, six, 12 acres, they're not big. They're little farms. It's completely doable in so many different communities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk all the time to people that, you know, grow a ton of food in their backyard and there's a lot of that going on. And I think the general knowledge of that, I hope is increasing. I hope people are realizing more and more how much they can do on their own. This community idea, it's fascinating though, and I find really helpful and exciting. And what are some other mm -hmm. of the requirements? You've mentioned the composting and getting things from the local grocery stores, the waste. And I, I've heard, by the way, that thing they have about not wanting to get rid of their old produce. I really don't understand that. I'd like to know the reason behind that. So in terms of like the actual farming practices, like, you know, like no till and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So bed should never be empty for any amount of time. As soon as you're harvesting something, you put the next thing in right away. Companion planting and interplanting is a very important part of it. So one that I heard of was a cauliflower. You could plant a cauliflower and lettuces right next to each other. Like so cauliflower down the middle of a bed and then lettuces to the side. And that is because the lettuces kind of get big fast and they fluff out. And by the time they're ready to harvest, then the cauliflower is getting big enough where it's starting to shade the lettuces. So what you do is you just cut off the cauliflower. You don't pull the roots out. You cut off the cauliflower and then you would interplant your next series of things. Maybe it's radishes in between there because then you're going to start cutting out your lettuces and then your radishes are going to start coming. So that soil is always being utilized. It's never bare. And if it has to be bare for any reason, maybe it's winter time and you don't have a hoop house, 
then it is mulched. And then constant top dress of compost, 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 compost. Keep top dressing. Don't pull the roots out. Any waste, you know, doesn't it isn't chop and drop. It goes to the compost pile. So there's interplanting and companion planting. So there's other things that can be done. Obviously, open pollinar varieties of vegetables so that you can do your own seed saving and local communities can have their own land races that will perform very well in their own location. That's another one that's important. You're not beholden to Syngenta to be purchasing your seeds every year. I don't think that that really works well. It can cause intermingling of pollen and some of those seeds you can't save them because they have a terminator gene in them which makes their offspring sterile. So that's not cool. So open pollinars and heirloom varieties that have been developed over the millennia to work in your particular area, those are always going to be very good. Those are going to be winners for you. And another concept is get people used to eating ugly produce. If you got two carrots that look like they're hugging or like one's carrying another on like a backpack, that is, I think we've all seen those those funny, you know, ugly vegetables. You never see them in Kroger, but those are reality. They happen all the time. They happen all the time. There's nothing wrong with an ugly vegetable. And I think that we've sort of been lulled into this sense of, ew, what's wrong with that carrot? There's nothing wrong with it. That's the way some carrots grow. So ugly produce is another big piece of it. It reduces the waste. I wanted to ask you, what about the plowing, the no-till or low-till? Or what do you see as essential there in terms of regenerative practices for these agri-hoods? Have you guys seen the movie Common Ground? Is that the new Kiss the Ground? I haven't seen it yet. Yes, it is. There's one scene in the movie, maybe by the time this is released, it'll be more widely seen. It should be in Netflix probably sometime soon. There's a series and there's going to be another movie, by the way. So the first one was Kiss the Ground. And then the latest one here in 2023, it came out late 2023, was Common Ground. And then there's going, there's a third one in the process. There's one scene in Common Ground where they show the difference between a piece of cotton. I don't remember if it was an undershirt or a piece of men's underwear. I think it was men's underwear (laughs) and it was all cotton and they buried it in the ground where it had been plowed. And then they also buried it in a garden that was a no-till garden. And then they pulled it out of the ground six or eight weeks later. I forget the exact amount of time. And one was just dirty and the other one was completely eaten away. The cotton was gone, but the elastic remained. So right there is the case in point that explains the microbial activity that is going on in a no-till situation versus a till situation. And I think we have all come to realize that the disturbance of the soil not only releases a lot of greenhouse gases, which whether you believe in global warming from CO2 or not, I'm not, whatever, I'm not going to argue that. I actually have mixed feelings on it personally. You do need carbon in the soil, regardless of whether CO2 is a pollutant or not. The fact that it's coming out of the ground and it's no longer in it, that is a soil issue because we need to sequester the carbon. So the plowing, they can do all kinds of studies and they can see that there's plumes of carbon dioxide coming off of these farms while they're being plowed. That is carbon leaving the earth. So it's really important to disturb the soil as little possible. That's why no-till is so good. And yeah, if you're doing it on industrial level, maybe you want to do the roller crimper and cover crops and things like that. But if you're talking about the really intensive interplanting and sequential planting on a very intensely managed small area, just add compost. Just keep adding it and just disturb the soil as little as possible. And you'll have so much better biological health inside your soils. So much better. And it doesn't kill the earthworms either. It doesn't chop them up and kill them and dry them out. The better soil, water retention and everything. Like 1% of organic matter. If you increase your organic matter in the top layer of your soil, just 1% across an acre, that 
land can hold an extra 20,000 gallons of water per acre. You want to talk about drought resilience and not needing additional irrigation and emptying aquifers and stuff like that? That's the answer. And it has to do with getting organic matter in. So it's compost, it's biochar, it's carbonaceous things. Gosh, those are wonderful illustrations for things that people probably hear a lot. But they can apply it to example, like you just did. I, I think that's fascinating. And I, I have not seen the new documentary with the example of the underwear biodegrading or composting. And that's a great example. It really is. So we like to talk a lot about slow living on this podcast, along with slow food and slow fashion. And so we would love you to speak to what slow living means to you personally. <laughs> I really, I, I know you guys are going to ask me this because you ask all your guests this. So I really thought about this a lot and I am busier than I used to be, but I consider myself living more slowly now, which, which sounds so contradictory, so self-contradictory. To me, slow living, it has been making intentional choices about what I have chosen to engage in and not engage in, put my energy into pass it by, say no thanks. And those changes that I have made in my life in order to make that possible. So slow living for me is I'm willing to take the time for my compost pile rather than going to the store and buying some compost in the bag or rather than going to the grocery store and buying those vegetables. I'm outside and I'm now spending many hours in my garden producing vegetables. It's probably not terribly efficient despite what I say. Not as efficient time-wise. I think that's slow living, but it's worth it to me because I've placed that value there. And so I think my life is fuller, but I have decided to be very intentional about where I put my time. And that's the slower part because I have given myself space for enjoyment and thoughtfulness and reflection and mindfulness and really being in the present. That's my slow living. Yes, thank you. And this might sound a little redundant after our discussion here, but but what does the good dirt mean to you? Yeah, living soil. That was a little trickier because the word dirt. Like one of the people that I'm teamed up with is a company. They're actually they're starting to do some amazing things. It's called Foop, F O O P, which is like food, fish, and poop. Foop. <laughs> I don't have any any financial interest with this company at this time. I would love to team up with them and be their be their partner in the near future, hopefully. But they turn dirt into living soil through inoculant and other things that they have that you can put in your soil. And so the good dirt is like, I feel bad because I think of it as like the good soil, the good earth. I think there's a difference between dirt and soil. So you're saying it's living, good dirt is living soil. Yeah. Maybe it's good dirt after I've like had a whole day of gardening and I come in and I've got like yeah. smudges on my face. Maybe that's good <laughs> and dirt. And also that too. <laughs> you're talking about in these communities, people being asked to save their food scraps and turn it into the farm for the farm compost. I just think that's an amazing shift for people in their daily lives, just to have that understanding that this is how we build the foundation of life on the planet is by feeding it and using our waste. And I just think that alone, I mean, there's so many fascinating things about this agrihood idea. I mean, there's, there, it's just such a, a rich concept and I'm super excited about it. But even that one thing, just conditioning people, you're not going to throw your leftover food in the landfill, you know, to create more methane gas problems and more landfill problems. And we're going to turn it into 
good dirt. Yeah. And I think that people in the future agrihood, when we start publishing the numbers of what the volume and the weight is of the food scraps that have been collected, I think that in itself will be an eye opener because people will be amazed how much food is wasted. And after they see what it takes to produce the food, it changes everyone's view on food completely. There's so much that we throw away in, in this country. There's so much that we throw away. Yeah. So as we wrap up the conversation today, is there anything else? that you want to leave with us, what would you most like listeners to take away from this conversation and understand about the work that you're doing? I would urge all of our listeners to take a look at the food that you're eating, decide if that's the type of food that you want to be eating. And if it's not, find a source as local as possible. And when you find those people who are growing those items or not growing or are willing to grow them, support them. Get to meet them, get to know them, stick with them. Even if they give you ugly produce, stick with them and support them and talk to them, get to know them. And I assure you, they will respond and they will provide the food that you want to purchase. If you tell them that people who are farmers, this isn't a job, it's a calling. And if you work with them, that is a huge affirmation to their souls and for their life's work. And they, they need that. And we need that. And I need that for my customers. I appreciate it deeply when I hear that from my customers. I, I'm actually not a gardener at all. I'm, I'm a livestock. I'm a, I, I raise hair sheep and dairy goats. So when one of my customers tells me that that was the best lamb chop that she ever had or you know, the shampoo bar that I've made from the, the milk from my dairy goats cured her daughter's eczema or something like that. It's very meaningful to me. Make those connections and get to know those people. Tell them your stories. Tell them your experiences. Share that with them and share it with your friends too. encourage that support because it's it can start with you. That, that one little thing, it can make a difference. Awesome. Thank you. Talk a little bit about what you're doing in terms of your farm mentoring, the services you're offering. How can people find you if they want to, if they're curious about this and anything else you want to say about what you're doing on your own farm? Okay, thank you. My website is www.fairhillfarm.com. And I have a, a bunch of different things that I offer. I sell very highly parasite resistant Katahdin, registered Katahdin hair sheep. And I also raise dairy goats. And I have 200 varieties of designer daylilies, which are just fun for me. That's my little guilty pleasure is lilies. And I offer consulting for people who are trying to make their own spaces, whether it is a family compound, a weekend getaway, their doomsday bunker bug out, like talk to me, no judgment. It's a judgment-free zone, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> but I help people get these places designed and these systems in place that will give them high efficiency, high yield plans, multi-year plans to get there and help you get to the level of knowledge and competence that you need. And in order to do that, I offer some documents that I can design and symposiums that I have and bespoke classes that I will design and have for people. I also do farm visits. I do consulting like that. No two projects are the same. They really aren't. I would love to say I do this, this and this, but the same way there's no two farms that are the same, there's no two projects that are the same. So if you have something that you're interested in getting, a, you know, bouncing some ideas and you need some soil analysis and a five-year road plan, then contact me. Take a look at the, some of the projects that I've done. I have them listed on my website. I also have a podcast called Fair Hill Farmstead Life. And on that podcast, I do some of the episodes myself, but for most of them, just like Mary and Emma do here, I interview other people and I am focused on those who have regenerative practices in their farming or their ranching. So that means grass-fed, rotational, grazing, 
meats for the most part, and then also intensive gardening processes. And I do that with the intention to help people understand that there are a lot of very successful people in the farming industry today who did not grow up on a farm and they just got started maybe within the last 10 years and success is completely possible. It's extraordinarily fulfilling. If you have a plan and you have a vision, you can make it happen. Regenerative agriculture is the future. It is the sustainable future of our food supply system here on this planet, I believe. And you can be one of the people getting ahead of it and being on the leading edge and helping everyone else learn, even as you learn, because there's so much we are just still discovering and we just don't know. So be part of the revolution. If you're young and you're considering going to college, not going to tell people not to go to college, but consider what you're going to be studying and think about it before you spend all those years. Because, you know, taking four years to have to turn around and pivot again and spend another four years learning how to farm. There's a lot of things you can do in the trades and there's a lot of things that you can do interning on farms and other things you can do with different degrees, which have not historically been something that was on sort of the mainstream of school. So I really love to talk to youth and encourage them to think about getting into agriculture because we need more farmers. It takes a long time to learn it, and no two farms are the same and no two people have the same tendencies or skills. So if you love animals, if you have a kid who is neurodivergent, people who are neurodivergent and on the spectrum are outstanding in the fields of agriculture. So if you have a kid of special needs who you're worried about for full functionality in life later in life, consider agriculture. There's just amazing things happening there, too. And not just in terms of bodily health, but also in the superpowers that I have seen some people on the spectrum display in the in terms of agricultural things they've been able to accomplish and, and notice and do. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. So true. You're so knowledgeable and you have such a grasp of the issues and an excellent way of communicating it. And this has just been a real illuminating conversation. And the Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. And keep us updated on the work with the agrihood. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm going to do that as we get into the further portions of the project where there's actually piece of land and then the plans and everything. I plan on keeping track of that and putting that up there probably as a case study. But then I also want to keep a journal and kind of talk about it. And then maybe I turn it into, I don't know, a book, a paper, something. I'm not sure, but I'm definitely going to be documenting it because it's still new enough in the process of agrihoods and eco-communities that I mm -hmm. think everyone's contributions really matter. So if anyone out there listening to this is working on an agrihood, do the same. Contribute and certainly reach out to me and talk to me about your experience with your agrihood that you've built. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to check in with you later and see how that's evolving up the road a little bit. Very, very interested in that concept. So thank you so much for being with us and we'll be in touch. Yes, this is super fun. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed <laughs> talking you. to you ladies. It was so fun. tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.